whenever you uh, visit India, you are marked for the rest of your life by the incredible, incredible, overwhelming sense of lostness. 36% literacy. That means the vast majority of that population can never be reached through literature. There's no media means to reach them. It has to be one-on-one. Steeped in Hinduism, which is militant and all kinds of internal battles. In fact, Chris Williams was telling me the other day that they feel that India is on the verge of a revolution. Well, it's a tremendous prayer burden for me, and I, I hope it is for you as well. I want to say a word of thanks to all of you who participated in the Christmas program. Absolutely outstanding. The best Christmas program I've seen. And I'll tell you something. I don't think there's a college in America that can put on anything the equal of it. Not just because of the quality of the music, but because of the quality of you kids that are involved. And I just want to say thanks. I really, really did appreciate it. So did everybody that I talked to. In fact, they were really overwhelmed. So thanks for all your effort and my thanks to Paul Plue, wherever you are. We really do appreciate that. Well, I like um, once a semester, if I can, to have a little time of question and answer, uh, sort of a press conference kind of deal. Whatever's on your heart, there's some microphones here. If you, if you don't feel you can get to the microphone, stick your hand up and make yourself known. But I know you have questions because all the time around campus when I'm here, I'm answering questions about the Bible or about ministry or about issues in your life or concerns you have uh, about how to live the Christian life or about a certain theological debate or about what somebody said in chapel or what somebody said in class or whatever it might be about our ministry, where we're going, what the Lord is doing. And I, I want to give you that opportunity to ask those this morning. Do me a favor. Oh, we're ready to go. Good. Uh, make your question short. Don't start. I was born in Kansas City. Then we moved to Tulsa. You know, I mean, don't give me your life history. Just, you know, basically uh, ask the question if you can. And not a lot of background. So we can use the time. We only have about a half an hour. And I want to cover as much as we possibly can. Okay. Who's ready? Right here? Yeah, when you um, work on executing a passage of Scripture, you're pulling application out of it. Could you just go through some of the, the basics of how you pull an application out of a passage that's not black and white clear, like, thou shalt not murder? I mean, I realize this is like three years of seminary, but can you just give us some basic pointers? Yeah, uh, uh, you're asking a very basic question, and you're asking me to basically to describe for you what I, what I do every day of my life. So if I can't answer this question, you'll know I'm getting all my material from somebody else. So uh, this, is, this is sort of a direct hit. <laughs> a good question. There are, there are several things that you want to understand in the process of biblical interpretation. First question you ask yourself is, what does it mean? Uh, what does it say? What does it say? First question. All right, I'm reading the scripture. What does it say? Do I understand what it says? Now, that means for me that I've got to go behind the, the surface a little bit, make sure that I've got a good translation, that, that I'm translating that accurately. If you know the Hebrew and the Greek, it's just that much benefit. And uh, I started long ago uh, sort of learning Greek because I knew I'd spend my time in the New Testament. So I'll go behind the text, make sure I know what it says. Second question, what does it mean by what it says? What does it mean by what it says? There's a process involved in that. I've got to know what was said before this and what was said after this because it has to have a context, right? All conversation has to have a context. Taken out of context, it can mean a lot of things. So what does it mean by what it says? First thing that I read before, I read after, and I, I decide what the subject is, what the, what the frame of reference is. 
And in discovering what it means by what it says, I begin then to draw out principles. All right? Draw out principles. For example, if you, you mentioned thou shalt not murder. Okay, the first principle is don't kill people. Right? But there's some other things that immediately come to mind. The first question that would come to my mind is, well, what, a, what about self-defense? Right? Second question is, what about war? Third question is, what about when Jesus said, if you hate somebody, you're as much as a murderer? Now, all of a sudden, I've expanded that one principle into other principles as I moved around the scripture. That is probably the longest process. That, that's, that's hours of just discerning and delving and comparing and analyzing and going to other scriptures and beginning to build the whole reality of what that means by what it says. The last step, then, is to make application. The first application would be don't kill somebody. I mean, that's fairly clear. The second application would be, well, how do you deal with self-defense? And you need to go through the scripture and find teaching in the scripture that can help us with self, with understanding the need for self-defense, which is legitimate. And then you could also talk about capital punishment, right? Because the Bible says don't murder somebody. What about capital punishment? Is that wrong? Well, you remember what Jesus said. Jesus said, if you live by the sword, you what? You die by the sword. You know what he meant by that? He meant, Peter, you killed that soldier, and this, this government has a right to take your life. That was Jesus affirming capital punishment. Then you ask the question, what about the Sermon on the Mount, where, where Jesus says, if you hate someone, you're as much as a murderer, you've got to deal with that. And so you make application about the attitude of heart that we have toward other people. So that's the process. What does it say? What does it mean by what it says? And always in my process of study, I will discover in that second step far more than I ever preach. I mean, I just, I don't study to prepare a sermon. I study to understand fully the text and its subject. And out of that, I can always put the sermon together. Once I understand all those principles, then I can choose the applications that I want to make. Okay? Good question. Yeah, I just want to ask a question kind of dealing from a uh, counseling someone in that perspective. And just in mind, uh, keeping in mind Deuteronomy 22, 28 through, I think, 29, talking about if a, if a man is found laying with a woman who's not engaged, she's a virgin, then they shall, uh, he's required by... To marry her. To ma marry right. her. Just keeping that as a, a basic principle, uh, what do you think are some of the uh, insights or principles behind that in this modern-day society where we have people being involved sexually and say a child comes along, the first reaction is, well, you can adopt it in the Christian circles, you can adopt it. And it almost seems like the responsibility upon the man and the woman is just like thrown off immediately. How do you, how do you deal with that? How would well, you counsel someone that came to you in that situation? Yeah, you're asking a big question, Nathaniel, and I, I'll try to answer it as uh, simply as I can. What Deuteronomy says is you lie with a woman, you marry her. I mean, that's just flatly what it says. That's God's law. You, you crawl into bed with somebody, you're in effect, committing yourself to marry that person. I don't think God has changed that law. I don't think he's changed that law. I believe that God still, of course, condemns fornication. Fornication or sexual sin prior to marriage does not constitute marriage. That doesn't make you married. If it made you married, he wouldn't have to say, if you sleep with someone, you are required to marry her, right? Because if the sexual act made you married, then there's no need to require you being married. You've already been married by that. That's not true. If you sleep with someone, you're to marry that person. You have committed yourself to that person. You have committed yourself to the body of that person, to the heart and soul of that person. You've joined yourself in that indivisible union whereby two become one, and you are bound to marry that person. 
Now, you say, wait a minute. What if that person's not a Christian? Right? What if I'm a Christian and that person is not a Christian? Now I have to go to the New Testament and I find another compelling standard. And that standard is that you cannot join light to what? Darkness, 2 Corinthians 6. What fellowship hath Christ with Belial? Uh, a believer cannot be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. 1 Corinthians 7, marry only in the Lord. So now you have a compelling New Testament principle to overlay on top of that Old Testament principle. If you sleep with someone, you have to marry them. But now all of a sudden there's another consideration. If this person is not a believer, am I to enter into an unequal yoke? What's the answer? No. The New Testament being the fullness of revelation. Get this principle in mind. The Bible does not go from error to truth, but it goes from incompleteness to completeness. You understand the difference? The Bible doesn't go from error to truth. There aren't things in the Old Testament that are wrong and they're corrected in the New. There are things in the Old Testament that are incomplete, that are fulfilled and filled out and completed in the New. And so you have the full teaching exposed in the New Testament and there you're compelled not to marry that unbeliever and you've committed an act of sexual sin. You're not bound to marry if that person is not a believer. So that's the first compelling issue. But if two believers sleep together, the word of God is very clear. Deuteronomy still applies. You're to marry each other. That is not set aside. For the sake of the child that may be conceived in that union, but more than that, for the sake of the union itself. And you remember also 1 Corinthians 6 talks about sexual sin being a sin against the body. Because the more people that you have a partnership with, the more likely you are to pollute those people with some kind of physical disease, as you heard about in, I think, Josh's chapel sometime back. And so God has bound us to a one-person relationship without any promiscuity. We are to find one person, join ourselves to that one person for life. That doesn't limit your joy. That makes your joy complete. Anything else is a lie. You're not going to be fulfilled with many partners, only with one. So I believe that if you follow God's pattern, you sleep with someone, they're a believer, you marry that person. If a child is conceived in that union, you raise that child because that's your God-given responsibility. Anything outside of that is a deviation from the biblical standard. Okay? Pretty cut and dry. Anything outside of that deviates from the biblical standard. Not getting married is a failure to be obedient to the biblical standard. Not raising the child is a failure to fulfill the biblical standard. And God may chasten and has every right to do that if we're not obedient in that area. And that can have many ramifications, but that's the simple, clear teaching of the Word of God. Okay? Next. Uh, just given some of the events that are occurring over in the Middle East, what is the Christian's place in the battlefield, if any, and if so, in what capacity? That's a very, very important question. Uh, let, me, let me just put it as simply as, as I can. When the Bible says you shall not murder, it's talking about the aggressive, hostile taking of a life. Where you're the aggressor and you take a life. It is not talking about self-defense. It is not talking about capital punishment. It is not talking about war, because those things are covered in other scriptures. The simplest way to understand it is this. I believe that God desires to preserve righteousness in the world. 
And as a result of that, he has placed authority in the world. And the best scripture to, to get a grip on this is Romans chapter 13. And listen to what it says. Quite interesting. Every person uh, should be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. It is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. What he's saying here is that soldiers, policemen, anybody who bears a sword or carries a weapon is a minister of God for the purpose of punishing an evildoer. Now, you didn't carry a sword in order to, to spank people. You didn't carry a sword in order to whack their knuckles. You carried a sword in order to cut their head off or to run it through their heart, take their life. God then has given the authority to government to take life in the preservation of what is socially good and what is right. And that's very basic. And that's why God has instituted the government's right to capital punishment. In Genesis 9, it says, you take life, you give your life. By whose hand blood is shed, his blood shall be shed. It also tells us that Jesus said, as I mentioned earlier to Peter, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. And what he meant to say is, if you take that young man's life, Malchus, the servant of the high priest, then they have every right to take your life. And so our Lord advocated capital punishment in that regard. Also, there were times in the Old Testament when God used Israel's armies to destroy the armies of the wicked as God was using governmental authority to control evil. Okay? To control evil. Now, let me put it down to a basic principle. If I'm a citizen of the United States and my government says to me, there is an evil aggressor in Iraq... Saddam Hussein is an evil aggressor. He has moved in on Kuwait for one single reason, really, and that is the fact that Saddam Hussein has been irritated for years and years and years that Kuwait has been underselling him in the price of oil. You know that's what the issue is. And he wanted Kuwait to pay him back hundreds of billions of dollars to compensate him for the fact that they owned the market because they undersold him in oil. In other words, they sold oil for less money. And he has been infuriated for years because Kuwait has been getting richer and richer and richer because they have made the market purchase their goods, whereas Iraq didn't lower the price. And he wanted all those reparations paid back to him. It was greed. It was, it was money madness, as well as probably a satanically uh, driven egomania that made him move into Kuwait, but it all started over a money deal and begin to oppress. The atrocities that he's committed there, I don't know if you've been reading about them, are frightening beyond description to the Kuwaitis. If my government says to me, look, we're going to go in and defend the innocent against the attack of an evil aggressor, that's self-defense. I think God, God would be honored in such defense. 
Why? God has built into us self-defense. Your eyes blink when somebody moves at you. You, you have defense mechanisms. You, you, you are made to defend yourself. If somebody comes to my house, as they did one morning, and had a, a butcher knife, a, a metal patient came and wanted to, to take Melinda when she was just a little girl, and he was pounding on the door at the time that I called Patricia, telling her that he had escaped from a mental institution, and Melinda was at the door trying to open the door to whoever was knocking, and he was outside with a butcher knife. At the same time, I called the house, and I said, look, Patricia, don't open the door if somebody knocks. A mental patient has escaped, and the police think he's coming to our house, and so forth, and so on. They're a little behind getting there. Uh, and they were, but they got there eventually and got him and incarcerated him. Later on, he was taken out of the mental institution. He came back to the house. He had the same knife. I don't know why they released him. And uh, he was at the door, and he was pounding on the door. He had a horse that he had stolen in the front yard. And uh, I don't know what he was going to do was ram the door with the horse or whatever and get in the house. And the, the only weapon that we have in our house are, are baseball bats. We have this amazing collection of baseball bats. I picked out, you know, a, a 34, 32 um, thin-handled baseball bat like I used to use. And I just said to him through the door, I said, you come in the door and you're going to find your head in Valencia, basically. <laughs> Uh, it was just, just a rather simple statement, but I think he got the message. Uh, there was no question in my mind for five seconds that I was going to act in self-defense against an evil aggressor who was going to take the life of innocent people. If, and believe me, if he had come through the door, that's precisely what would have happened. I'm not a hostile person, I'm not a violent person, but I am one that believes I have a right to defend those that are innocent and are being attacked by an evil aggressor. If my government says you need to go and fight because we're going to protect the innocent from an evil aggressor, I can do that with all my heart. If, on the other hand, I was an Arab living in Iraq and I had become a Christian and Saddam Hussein conscripted me into his forces and said we're going to go down and massacre the Kuwaitis, I would have to say I'm sorry I cannot do that. I cannot do that. I cannot be an evil aggressor, but I can take my place to defend the world against the aggression of those wicked men and forces that would destroy innocent human life. That's precisely what God used Israel to do. So, uh, you know, as you look at the Middle East now, it's a frightening thing. In fact, this would be a good point to mention. Uh, how many of you have relatives that are either there in the Middle East or are headed there? Put your hands up. Isn't that amazing? Okay. Keep them up for a minute so we can kind of look around and see. Boy, that's, that's really amazing. Okay, you can put them down. Um, th there could be real war over there. And it's a very frightening reality for a number of reasons. One, the people are going to die. They always do in war. Two, there are some who think that 20,000 of our soldiers could die in three days. If the war breaks out three, the media is going to crucify the administration in the United States for doing this. And they're instead of getting on like they did in Second World War and interviewing a mother who says, I'm proud to say my son gave his life in protection of the innocent for the country that we love. They're going to get on and weep and moan and castigate the president and castigate the Congress and, and just take all their shots and blasts. We know they're going to do that because they did that in the Vietnam situation. And we're further along that same path of self-indulgent and selfishness than we've ever been before. 
that's going to make it all the more difficult. So it could be a very, very, very difficult, difficult battle. I'm not a military strategist, but if I were running the situation, I would uh, get some of those neutron bombs and, and try to fight that war without ground troops. That's a very difficult choice to make. But again, I think we have the privilege of defending the innocent, and we can show that from the Word of God. I think at this point I might mention one of our guys, Brian Howard. Where, where are you, Brian? Up there. Stand up for a second so everybody knows who you are. Okay. <clears throat> Brian is leaving Sunday, uh, first of all, for Okinawa and then to Japan and then to Saudi Arabia. He has what has to be the toughest assignment in the military. He is in the Marines and he is a hospital corpsman which means he is a medic. In battle, the life expectancy of a medic is 30 seconds because he has to go where the troops are being shot and administer to them medically. He's on the field, the proverbial sitting duck. And uh, I thought it would be good today if we just had a, a word of prayer for Brian. And for all the rest of these people that you know and love that are over there. Should we do that? Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we, we really hate all of this war. And, and yet we know that it's inevitable. We, we know you've even said that in the last days there will be wars and rumors of wars. And we know that the focus of the last days is on the Middle East. Who knows, Lord, but what we're very close to some of the wars that mark the very end. When we think about the book of Revelation and we think about the kind of wars that can kill a fourth of the population of the world and a third of the population of the world, and we know we're probably talking about some kind of nuclear weapons. And so it's something that could happen in our age, in our day. And Lord, as we see our, our eyes and our hearts and our minds focused on the frightening reality of the Middle East, and we realize that Hussein's real target is Israel, we believe he must be inspired by Satan because the dragon always chases the woman that gave birth to the child, which is Israel, who gave birth to the Messiah. And so, Lord, we don't know what all of this means, but, but we're comforted in the fact that you predicted these things would happen and you are the sovereign God. You lift up nations and put them down. You lift up rulers and put them down. We thank you, Father, for... The fact that you have put us in a nation that wants to protect the innocent and not a nation that wants to, to attack the innocent. We thank, you, we thank you that you've put us in a country that has always tried to come to the rescue of people who have been victimized. We've done it with our, with our foreign policy and providing food for nations all across the world, even to the point where it's put us in a difficult position financially. We've done it by placing our troops all around the world to try to protect the innocent. We know this comes out of our Christian background. But Lord, in, in spite of being thankful for that, we're fearful to lose the ones we love. First thing we do is thank you that 
many of them, and particularly in the case of Brian, know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. And whatever happens to him will only bring glory to your name and joy to his own heart. Even if he goes to be with you, that's the crowning joy of all of our lives. Lord, we pray that in these days when all the troops are over there and on their way, that you'll use the Christian men and women to be a light, an evangel, to be a source of the gospel message that can touch those who could lose their lives and bring them to the knowledge of Jesus Christ before that happens. We don't understand all of this, Lord, and we, we've always wished to live in a perfect world. And we know we have to wait for the millennial kingdom when the perfect Christ reigns and rules the world. But until then, Lord, preserve your church, preserve your people, spread your gospel. May the uncertainties of these days make the gospel more palatable, more eagerly heard. May many souls come to the Savior. We particularly pray, Lord, that you'll be with the chaplains and, as I said, the strong Christians in the military, that they might have tremendous access to the hearts of people there. And we pray, Lord, that you will continue to hold Saddam Hussein in control as the sovereign God, that he may affect only that which is your divine purpose, and that in all Jesus would be glorified. We pray in his name. Amen. Okay. I don't know who's next here. Okay. Um, do you believe, I was talking to somebody this weekend, they mentioned to me that what's going on in Babylon as far as the culmination of nations destroying Nebuchadnezzar, do you think this is a fulfillment of that Old Testament prophecy? Well, Thorpe, I don't really know that. I can't predict this. Um, I can't necessarily tie what's happening in the Middle East into prophecy. Um, as I said when I was praying, there will be wars and rumors of wars in the end time. Uh, I believe in talking about Babylon, you're talking about two Babylons, Revelation 17, Revelation 18. The Revelation 17 Babylon is a false religious system. The Revelation 18 Babylon is, a, is an economic system. It's a crumbling economic system. And when it talks about the end time Babylon, I believe we're looking at a period called the Tribulation. And in that tribulation period, there will rise a false world religious system called Babylon, the mother of harlots. Let me give you an insight. You say, how can the world system get together? Because it's so clearly divided at one point between Christians and non-Christians. Um, the dominant, the dominant force in the world in terms of Christianity, broad sweep, is Roman Catholicism, right? The dominant force in the world in terms of non-Christianity is a combination of Hinduism and Muslim or Islam, right? You say, how in the world could you ever get one world religion that would bring together the Roman Catholic system, Islam, and Hinduism? How could it happen? And then add another component. The fastest growing movement outside Roman Catholicism in the Protestant church is, is what movement? Charismatic movement. Just take those four components, and if you study them carefully, you will find they have a common thread, or a number of common threads. They all believe in Jesus Christ. The Hindus believe that Jesus Christ 
was the seventh incarnation of the god Shiva. The Hindus have a trinity, Brahma, Shiva, Vishnu. And then they have millions of gods. Shiva incarnates periodically. The seventh incarnation of Shiva was Jesus Christ. The eighth incarnation of Shiva was Krishna. That's why the Beatles could sing, My sweet Lord, Hare Krishna, My sweet Lord, Hare Krishna, same God. Islam believes Jesus was a prophet. Roman Catholicism believes in Jesus Christ. The Charismatics talk about Jesus Christ and, of course, believe in him. That's one common thread. Another common thread. Those four aspects of religion are all built on a mystical experience. An objective historical fact and revelation, but rather on mysticism. Chris Williams, we were sitting watching Channel 40, local charismatic station. Of course, he's grown up his entire life in a Hindu culture. He sat there and time again and again he said to me, that is Hinduism. That is Hinduism. That is not biblical Christianity. That is Hinduism. They're talking like the Hindus talk. That's, that's the religious Babylon. And I think what's going to happen is that once the true church is taken out, and I believe that uh, within the true church there will be some people who are going to Catholic church and there will be many people's, people who are involved in charismatic churches, but of course are true Christians. But once the true church is taken out in the rapture, then what you're going to have is all these religions with a common denominator of a mystical, religious, and spiritual experience that somehow includes the person of Jesus Christ but has no spiritual reality. It'll pull it all together in a final world religious system. And it's pretty clear in Revelation that it'll be headed up in Rome, city with seven hills. Then in chat, and by the way, it'll be destroyed, of course, by Christ. But then, before it's destroyed by Christ, the, the Antichrist himself will eat it up and suck it up into his political system. In Babylon of, of Revelation 18, you don't have necessarily a literal city. You have Babylon, the economic system, a world economic system, godless, materialistic, and we can see that already. The world is shrinking. Uh, the, all this world economy stuff that's going on, the interchange of currencies and all of that leading to a world system. And, of course, you have one world economic system. You have one world ruler in the Antichrist. He controls the whole system. So whether or not the actual city of Babylon will be built, I'm not sure. I, I, don't, I tend not to think so. But there will be systems that are given that title because Babylon was the mother of all perverted things originally. And that's why it, that it bears that title. Could you make some distinctions for us between your um, mega church and some of the other ones that are out there today, like Bill Hybels and, and those who um, might not be quite as desirable for us to follow their path? Uh, let, me, let me answer your question this way. Um, I just finished a book. Um, when did I finish? I finished it, uh, what's today, Monday? I finished it Thursday. I've been writing it for four years. It's like having a four-year pregnancy, I think. I don't know, but I think. And I, uh, furthermore, I will never know. But it's, it's like having a, finally giving birth to this thing. And in that book, 
I have addressed the issue of what's happening in the church today. And I have addressed it as straightforwardly as I can from a biblical basis. The book took me four years to put together, but it's taken me 20 years to think to arrive at the conclusions. It deals with three issues. Mysticism, which I just talked about, which is coming to religious truth through intuition rather than revelation. Psychology is the second issue it deals with which is assuming, one, as Freud assumed, there is no God, two, that man therefore must fix his own life. So let's teach him technique to do that. And that has infiltrated the church. Three, pragmatism, which means, as people like Bill Hybels and many others would say, if you want to know what to say in your church, ask the people what they want. I remember, I'll give you an inside scoop. I remember at the NRB one year, National Religious Broadcasters Convention, Robert Schuller spoke. And he said to all these people, he said, we've built a great church because we've given the people exactly what they wanted. Exactly what they wanted. He said, we did a survey of our community, asked the people what they wanted, and we gave them what they wanted. Well, after that was over, Chuck Swindoll and myself were on a panel discussion with the same people after the speech. Some guy stands up and says, I want to ask a question. And he said, I want to ask it to John MacArthur. He said, what did you think of what he said? <laughs> so, you know, I want to be an honest guy. And I said, I totally disagree with it. Totally. I said, if you want to know how to run a church, read the word of God and give people what they don't want and don't know they desperately need. On Sunday night in our church, I alluded to this in the morning, Alistair Begg, you had a good time hearing him last week, and on Sunday night before that Monday chapel, he taught on the text of Acts 24, and we had been discussing that for a couple of days before, and he'd been reading Martin Lloyd-Jones' second volume on his biography, and we'd been talking this whole issue through, and so he went ahead and spoke on the issue. Paul approached Felix and Drusilla. Now, here's a perfect illustration. Paul is a prisoner captive. Felix is the governor. Felix is an unconverted pagan. Felix is the one that Paul wants to win to Christ. So how does he approach him? Right? Perfect, perfect opportunity. How is Paul, and after all, isn't it Paul who said, I want to become all things to all men so that by all means I might win some? So what's Paul going to do? Is he going to say what Felix wants to hear? By the, by the way, sitting at Felix's right hand is his wife, Drusilla who is an adulteress and he's an adulterer and he had an affair with her and stole her from another guy. They're both living in wretched sin. And so Paul comes to them. He knows they hold his life in their hands. They hold his destiny and future in their hands. He knows that they need Christ. Uh, he knows that uh, he's got to get through to them somehow. So what does he say? Does he soft soap it? No, it says he talked to them about righteousness, self-control and judgment. Nose to nose, righteousness, God has a perfect standard, self-control, you don't have it, you have violated his standard, you're living in sin, and you are headed for damnation. Now, would you call that friendship evangelism? That's not too subtle, folks. That's not too subtle. And Alistair said, I would rather go away 
knowing some was, someone was offended by the truth than not offended by not knowing the truth. This whole effort to, to win friends and influence people and make everybody like you has emasculated the truth of the message. I'm very concerned about that. There's only one, only one institution the Lord ever said he'd bless. That's a church. And there's only one, one source of information that carries his power. I don't care how clever you are. And this is it. It's the word of God. It's the word of God. I told you when I was in the Soviet Union, I told our people. I preached a sermon in a church and I just opened the word of God. These, these precious people, I mean, they just want to hear the word of God. They don't, you don't need to entertain those people. No, I was the third preacher that morning. I gave sermon number three. Two hours had gone by. At ten minutes to twelve, I stopped. I had taught the Word of God, straightforward as I could teach it. And I said, if any of you would like to repent from your sins and follow Jesus Christ, just come to the front. Well, there were no aisles. The people were packed like sardines in a can, just jammed, and there were no aisles. And there was no music, no mood music, no hoopla, no nothing. But I just said, if you want to repent from your sins and come and follow Jesus Christ, come to the front. That was 10 minutes to 12. 10 minutes to 12. Nothing more was said. At 1.30, one hour and 40 minutes later, the last person had come. For one hour and 40 minutes, these people came. They came pushing through the crowd and squeezing through and people would hug them and pat their arm. When they got to the stage, this is what happened. As soon as they got to the platform, the pastor went over and said, would you kneel? This is a person coming to receive Christ. Would you kneel? And then he took a microphone, put it under their mouth and said, now repent so all of us can hear. Somebody would say, oh, man, you'll never get anybody saved. That's too intimidating. You don't get people saved by your technique. People come to respond to the truth. You see, it's a false, false sense of success. The only thing that changes lives is the truth. Well, that's a little about what's in my book. Uh, it'll be out in on March 1st. And whoever isn't mad at me already will be mad at me after that <laughs> book is out. <laughs> We'll take these three real quick, and I'll give short answers. Sorry. Okay. Uh, in First Timothy 5, 8, it says, But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. As a pastor, how would you counsel a believer who is uh, part of a household where the father does not provide for his own? That's very important. He said, he's quoting that Timothy passage, and of course it says, if, if, you, if you don't take care of your household, you know what that household means? Not just your wife and your children, but your extended household. It could mean your, your parents or grandparents. Or it could mean cousins. Anybody that's within the framework of your responsibility. It also could mean in those days servants and so forth. And it, it, he says in effect that if you as a Christian do not take care of the people in your household by providing for their needs as a man, as the head of the house, you're worse than an unbeliever. Why does he say that? Because even unbelievers do that, right? Even unbelievers do that. Even non-Christians realize that responsibility. Now, if you're in a situation where that provision is not being made, two things. One, you have to make your own provision. And there are a lot of people like that. Hey, I want to tell you, my heart goes out to some of you kids. My heart aches every time I, I see a, the name of a young person 
And we pray about this, who can't come back because you don't have the resources. And I know we wish this whole thing were free. And I spend a lot of my time and a lot of my prayer time pleading with the Lord to provide funds so we can keep the prices lower and lower so you can come here. Because I know in many cases you don't have anybody to help you. You are on your own. And you're having to, to hack your way through your education by working and, and, and it, because nobody's providing this for you. And it's, as a parent, I believe that that is, that is something that every parent, if they can do, should do for their young person. This is the greatest investment that you could ever make for a young person. But not everybody understands that. And I know that that's very, very, very difficult for some of you. Now, you've got two choices. One, you have to fend for yourself. And, and maybe you have to counsel somebody. You've got to be on your own. You've got to do what you've got to do. Secondly, and I believe this very strongly, I think that where women are involved, and particularly where you have single parents or women with children or whatever, that the church needs to come in and make provision for those people. Because, in effect, that's a widow indeed. What happens to a woman who's got three kids and her husband runs off with a secretary? What's she going to do? Grace Church has always had the commitment to bring that woman in, counsel with her, go through all of her financial needs, and do everything we need to do to make sure that all those needs are met. That's what the church is all about. Okay? If you were counseling somebody that was had a lot of problem with worrying and stress and dealing with a lot of things like that, how would you, what would you say to them like, from the Bible Scriptures? Um, Adam, let me say it this way, simple as I can. The reason people worry and the reason people have distress is because they do not understand the character and the nature and the power and the sovereignty of God. So I would give them everything I could find that would expand their understanding of who God is. When you, when you understand that God is absolutely in control of everything in this world, and nothing is outside his sovereign control. And when you understand that God is too loving to ever be unkind to his own beloved children and too wise to ever make a mistake and too powerful to ever be uh, overpowered, you, you have literally rested in the confidence of who God is. The, uh, to say it another way, no one ever lives at a level beyond their understanding of God. Did you get that? You live out your theology Whatever you believe to be true about God controls the way you live. And so when I find a person who's full of anxiety and worry and fear and all of that, the bottom line is you need help in understanding who your God is and coming to grips with the fact that he's in control of everything. The most comforting truth in the world is the sovereignty of God. God is absolutely sovereign. Hey, you know what the alternative is? He's not sovereign. He's not in control, and it's all one big grab bag. And then you know what? Everybody has reason to worry and fear and be anxious, if that was true. So I would take that person to a deeper understanding of the knowledge of God, the love of Christ, so that they know in whom they believe and can put their trust. Okay? Um, what do you say about, or what should our response be to people who um, claim that they're Christians and then say that they're prophets, that God has spoken to them, and that they'll pull people out of an audience or something and tell them very, very specific things about what's happening to them and just where they're at in their life. And um, they give all the glory to God, saying that, you know, it's God's word spoken to them, and they're not 
at least outwardly trying to bring attention to themselves. But, I mean, how should we respond to that? You know, it might differ from person to person. I don't know that I could give you a general answer. But if a person claims to be a prophet, take him to the Old Testament and show him that if a prophet ever made one mistake, he was to be stoned. It usually has an effect on them. Not the stoning, but just the idea that the stoning have an effect on them, too. A prophet, to say that you're a prophet of God is to say that you speak for God or when you open your mouth, God is actually speaking. And the test of a prophet in the Old Testament was, was he ever wrong? And if he was ever wrong, kill him. That's the simplest way to pull him up short. Okay, there's more to be said, but you know what? It's time for class. All right. Have a good.